All right, folks, welcome back for another episode of the newly renamed Tanzu Talk or Tanzu Tack, if you choose to pronounce it that way. Uh, that might be a bit of a stretch. We're going to go with Tanzu Talk for now. This is Dormain Drewitz, and with me today, I have a trio of guests, all hailing from uh, Liberty Mutual, and they bring a, uh, a set of perspectives, thrice perspectives. I don't know. I I'm committed to trying to use thrice at some point in this podcast in a grammatically correct way. I don't think I hit the grammatically correct part so far. Um, So let's do some quick introductions before we dive into the topic du jour. Uh, Kevin, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Sure. Um, I am Kevin Ingvalson, kind of as described, I guess, relative to this talk. I have been playing platform operator for, I think, about the last half of a decade or so. Um, Before that, I've also impersonated database administrators, system administrators, and uh, overall application developer extraordinaire. I'm a data modeler. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm the one that's usually on the team that's the, the sucker that when everyone else takes a step backward, I wasn't paying attention, and there I am. So here I am. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, we appreciate all of your past impersonations. Um, and always interesting to see someone who, who's got a, a database admin background uh, showing up on our calls. Um, Next up, we have Miranda LeBlanc. Do you want to give us a quick intro? Sure. So I started um, with Liberty back as an intern and then came in through a rotational program where I worked out on the business side, doing all the training to be an insurance agent, but came back to the IT side and worked in a number of different roles like business analysis and eventually found my way into more software development and found my passion there. Uh, worked as a developer for a number of years, joined our secure DevOps platforms team and on that team have worked as a developer, a product owner, an engineering manager and now back to more of a developer role. So run the gamut of different types of jobs within IT. Yes, indeed. That's uh, that's like I can imagine your LinkedIn resume is like where there's you know you have to expand that. Would you like to see more? <laughs> um, <laughs> A little and, bit of let's keep going. Just try things out. Yeah, great, well-rounded view to bring to Tanzu Talk. All right, last up we have Matt Rule, um, and correct me if I'm pronouncing your last name incorrectly. No, that's exactly right. It's Matt Rule. And um, currently, by title, I'm a security architect. I'm uh, aligned with our with our uh, developer experience teams. I've jumped around a bit at Liberty in terms of roles, but um, the one common thread is that I'm always a developer, always a developer at heart. I've been doing that for as long as I can remember. So I've kind of made it my mission in life to uh, sort of speak for the developers, focus on developer advocacy and trying to make the best experience possible. Past few years, I fell into a bit of a, a security niche, just kind of a I guess it, it started out being my biggest uh, hindrance in life, and, it, and I just kind of fell in, fell in love with solving all things around security. And so, sort of, I wake up thinking about being, you know, combining this role of, of developer advocate with um, with being a security architect. So that's kind of my mission in life at the moment, and trying to make trying to make life easier for our, our development community. And that, that's a great way to kind of tee up our topic, which is really around developer experience. And, and so, you know, Matt, you, you, you set up this mission that you've been on to make the developer lives better. 
but maybe we can kind of hear from everyone about why does developer experience matter? Why is it important? And, you know, both from a technical perspective uh, as well as maybe how you see this connect back to the business. Anyone can go ahead and jump in, but I'm going to look at Matt first because you kind of set that one up. I think a lot of what we want to solve as a business is really around agility and getting value to production, to our customers' hands as quickly as possible. And that really sits on top of, I mean, that really, that really centers around our ability to improve our software delivery life cycles and get and produce software faster. Get, take something from idea all the way to a production environment as quickly as possible. And obviously that revolves around providing an ultimate, you know, positive developer experience, removing points of friction, removing inhibitors and making it not only possible to get things to move at speed, but also make it an an enjoyable, delightful experience for our developers to be able to do that. So it really is sort of one of the the cornerstones of of being able to solve our our objectives overall as a business. Miranda, what would you add to that given you've spent a lot of time as a developer yourself? Yeah, so my biggest passion right now is about developer education and Matt and I actually spoke about this at Spring One Platform, um, is that it's just as important to build out a unique and intuitive experience for your developers with your tools and platforms. But it's also important that um, developers understand the technology behind what they're using to build their business value. So that's where a lot of my focus has been on partnering with different teams across our organization and doing different events to try to have immersive education experiences where people can actually go and try out our tools and platforms and get something up and running and deployed out into the cloud within a matter of minutes and then be able to see it it makes it real for those teams. And then they can start to think, okay, how can I start using these tools and how can I start um, solving these business problems faster? Yeah, I think solving solving business problems faster is really kind of what it comes down to. If if you're on the business side trying to understand, like, why would we invest in developer experience? Hopefully that, that gets you an answer. Yeah. Kevin, like, let's just take a slightly different tack on this question because something that I, I sometimes notice um, for folks who, you know, as a someone in platform ops and platform engineering, um, there's sort of this emerging uh, kind of class of folks uh, that are, you know, you might call them cloud architects and they may have more of a systems admin background such as yourself. Um, but, but sometimes I'll hear them talking about how it's like, yeah, I want to go, I don't want to use some commercial storage offering. I want to write my own storage thing. And it just, it just is one of those things where it's like, okay, I get it. You're, you're sort of, you have, um, a lot of like strong infrastructure chops, but you also kind of twitch a little bit. Like I want to write a script for that. I want to, I want to use the APIs and I want to, I want to build stuff. But sometimes I see it aimed towards something like I'm going to reinvent the wheel on, uh, you know, storage interface sort of feels like you're, you're taking your great talents and not really applying them to the right problem. So I'm just curious from your perspective as someone who's, um, kind of in that that type of role with that kind of background, why do you see developer experience as important and, and maybe how it would compare to, you know, being able to use kind of your, your skills to redesign 
some clever way of using infrastructure. Well, wow, that's more, more, a lot of words in one question. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I guess it does have to, I mean, kind of like Matt said, I am, I am still a developer at heart and soul out of all of those things that I've done before. But I'm also one other thing. I, I am lazy. Um, so like what you had described, uh, when you have the ability to use some sort of socialized system, um, you know, whether it's a, I need to store a file, I don't need to write a file storage system. Um, there's a couple obvious ones that come to mind. NFS is not one of them. Um, so hooking things in there, it, it just kind of makes, it makes sense. I mean, the, the stuff that we do day in and day out, there's, there's stuff you hide in the back room, but the better you use um, something that's been socialized, something that's shared, something that makes sense, the less time you spend diagnosing and working on those kinds of things. The stuff I love is my, I guess, the, the part where I still get to play developer the most is because we also are the intake for issues. Um, so what will happen is, you know, I'll, I'll get fun things like I'll, I'll get a person that I'd worked with that, you know, she's now here as the same title that we're working on diagnosing pool connections inside of an application because you take the beauty and power of spring and then the way it does the HTTP calls and all that other stuff. And then you put that in an enterprise and you get something that's closing off your connections. You get to have fun, deep conversation on how do I find which library is actually has the bad pool connection such that my connections aren't closing correctly. So the retry isn't working inside of my application because you get these discoveries of where teams have used the stuff, they've used Spring and the other stuff to its power where they, they, they use simple code, but then you take the enterprise stuff that adds potentially different layers and it's like, how do you help, how do you help define them? And then the bigger challenge, kind of what we're talking about here today, how do we take it when we learn that? How do we make that available to everyone else? Because I'd rather talk about that stuff on something like this, as opposed to have to have that same conversation again with the next person who ran into that same problem. I don't have a real good answer to that one, but I think that's why we're here today. Is it's, you, you talk about this stuff, you share it, and you're trying to figure out how to get to people in those experiences. Yeah, there's, there's a, a common theme there, I guess, of not wanting to have to redo something, right? And that includes not needing to reinvent the wheel if there's a file storage system that already exists that'll solve it. But also, you know, once you've solved a problem and, and dug it and understand it, how do you make that repeatable for um, everyone else? So you don't have to repeat yourself. So um, let's kind of then, then dive in a little bit more to, you know, now that we understand why the developer experience matters, what, what are some things that you've each seen from your, your respective perspectives that actually move the needle? Because there's a lot of things that, you know, probably sound like, oh, that'd be cool and developers would be happier, more productive. And, um, you know, we'd get things out faster somehow. But what, in your experience, if you had to kind of pick what was the top thing that you said, wow, this is what really moved the needle for our developers. And we'll, we'll rotate back around. So, Kevin, let's start with you. Okay, um, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll start with something quite simple. Start with working. Um, don't, don't start with, um, oh, I have hello world. When you check your code out of your repository, um, you better be able to fire it up and have functioning code. If you didn't commit it to your source repository in that state and you can't actually deploy it to your environments in that state, fix that because that no developer wants to have to start off with, Oh crap. I don't even know if this is the right code. Base. That seems like a good place to start. Yep. Yeah, because once you have something working, then we could talk about all the other great things like, 
if, you know, we can argue, do you start with the test first? Do you start with the code first? As long as you walk along the beach, that's great. But if you didn't start from working, you're standing and not doing much of anything. All right. How about you, Miranda? Um, so the biggest thing for me or that I've seen moving the needle is just putting the power into developers' hands through self-service. So whatever, you know, going through and mapping that value stream of what does it take to go from an idea to working software and mapping along that stream and just trying to find what are the manual handoffs where developers need to ask someone else to do the work and what can we do to automate those. Um, So that's kind of just a huge theme I've seen over the years. The more that we can get into our customers' hands and our customers are the developers, um, the faster we've seen adoption, the faster we've seen growth, um, the more we've seen people really understanding the tools because they're getting in and diving in and kind of doing it themselves and taking that ownership. And is that something like that value stream mapping process, is that kind of a one and done or do you have to continuously come back to reassess what the current value stream is for your developers? Yeah, that's a continual reassessment. And Matt actually is phenomenal at doing that. And he does that every day with customers. Um, I kind of come in at more of the problems and helping customers troubleshoot their issues once they're in our platform. He's out there trying to find what are the next blockers to solve. So, All right. So Matt, uh, you've been teed up as the expert in, in the value stream mapping process. But if you were to step back, how would you? what would you look at as... Um, you've clearly done this a number of times. Is, are there any patterns that have emerged for you in terms of what's what moves the needle the most? Yeah, well, I was going to talk all about value stream mapping and automation and developer empowerment, but you know, Miranda kind of beat me to the punch there since she went in the reverse order. The uh, you know, there's I can build off of that though, right? So we we talk about I, I remember days when we had a lot of stuff auto automated and that we'd, we'd still run into tickets and, and that would take one, two, three weeks a month to get done. And we were told, plan ahead, do a better job planning. And that shows a, a severe lack of understanding of what it's like to be a member of an agile product team here where we make mistakes. We're fallible. You know, humans are fallible and not everything is perfect as planned. Um, at, you know, we, we've, we've learned that for decades now, right? So to kind of get away from some of those traditional mindsets and, and realize that we need to pivot, we need to make changes and we need to automate everything, everything. So, you know, as we're doing that value stream mapping, we, we pinpoint those, those uh, hindrances, those points of friction in the process, and we, and we target those ones that are causing the most amount of pain. So we shift left, right? We start to automate those things and put more power into the hands of the developers. But it doesn't stop there. Um, at this point, you know, we've shifted left, and now developers have more responsibil- responsibilities. They have all the tools to deliver software faster, but they also have a much greater responsibility. So let's look at, you know, specifically around the area of security. You can't just shift left and say you're done, all right? All the security, all the um, secure code is in your hands now. It's up mm-hmm. to you guys, right? So you have to build in, you have to, you have to revisit that. You have to look at empowering teams, not, through, not just through tools, but providing access to expertise, you know, people who understand application security, not just these centralized teams that that lay all the groundwork and then hand the tools over to developers. So for me, it's a lot about building a support system, building all of the, um, all the things that a developer needs to to be able to deliver software, not just the tools, but providing educational opportunities, access to other expertise. One of the big things I've been focusing on lately is really around 
inner sourcing and taking the best of breed ideas and making it more reusable. So taking these things that developers are building and make sure that we don't, we're not building it time and time again in the same way on different teams. So a long answer, a lot of different things piled within there, but it's about shifting left and it's about providing the structure that uh, developers need to be able to, you know, provide an environment where developers can be successful at delivering software, not just giving them all the right tools. Yeah. So what's some of the, um, when you think about creating access to expertise, that's a really interesting uh, concept and I can imagine when you have a lot of developers, how do you manage access to expertise in a scalable way? It's, it's definitely been a challenge. I mean, it's, there's still a tendency to fall back into tickets and service desks and you know, structured means of communication across teams. A big part of where I see that we're being successful is really the more of the informal types of stuff. You know, we're out there in, in Slack and we're making our sales, ourselves available to talk to each other across teams, kind of breaking down some of those traditional boundaries. So it's definitely easier said than done, but you find the people that are really proving to be successful to show to the people that are really demonstrating both the expertise and the um, willingness, the appetite to help across teams. And you put them in a position where they're able to do that, um, allow them to um, get involved where, where applications are experiencing that pain and where, where application teams are experiencing that pain and where they need some additional support. So it's a little okay. bit about just uh, breaking down some of the barriers and identifying, you know, people who are, who are best fit to be able to do that. We're still, you know, it's still something that we struggle with to this day. So we don't have it completely solved. When you find someone who has some useful experience that you think would be wow, this, this person really needs to get in front of more of our developers. And anyone, feel free to chime in. But um, what do you do next? Does that person, do you have to talk to their manager and say, listen, we, we want this person to be able to spend some of their time uh, being available to other teams, kind of make it part of their job? Or, you know, what, what's the next step when you sort of identify those, those experts out there? Personally, for me, I try to get them more engaged and more involved. I've seen people with a good idea, something that they're building out um, that I think others, other people could benefit from. And I ask them to, uh, you know, contribute something to our inner source library. Let's make this, let's package this up and make it, um, make it reusable. Or, or, um, or I might start a, I might ask them to do a blog post on the topic and then I'll try to get some more, I'll, I'll leverage that and try to get some more return on the investment, so to speak, to make sure that we're taking that, that skill set and getting, getting the most mileage from it, whether it's through direct involvement across teams or just having them commit in ways that we can uh, benefit from more broadly without, without asking for a bunch of time or a large commitment. So it's really just trying to give them a voice and get them out there in the community and get them engaged to where they feel recognized and they feel value in what they're doing. It doesn't feel like just another job assignment. Yeah. Yeah. That recognition can be a really a great motivator for, you know, humans and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So coming back to, um, you know, uh, developer experience, there's, there's something that recently I've seen come up a lot that I'm curious what y'all's perspective, and I don't know if that's an appropriate use of y'all, but uh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna go with it. Twice, you're okay. Oh, okay. Great. Um, wait, twice or thrice? 
We had to bring in thrice, so you know. Uh, thank you. No, that was like we're on like a volleyball team. I don't know if you're Goose and I'm Maverick, but someone just set and someone just spike. It's something like that. It's great. <laughs> um, team work. So this this kind of notion coming up, where trying to connect the dots between some you know some technologies out there, stuff like Kubernetes, and then developer experience and helping people understand. Well, What's the connective tissue between these two things? What needs to happen between them? And one thing that I, I'd love to get y'all's perspective on, there we go, that was at least twice, maybe thrice, um, is what's the, what's the, the connection? What, what is it about containerizing applications uh, and then getting them on some kind of platform that enhances the developer experience, that helps it? Um, and on the flip side, where are some things that where it maybe creates some challenges as well, like different challenges that didn't exist before? But can can we help connect the dots for folks between, okay, containerizing apps has been something that's happened for a long time. Um, how does that help? How is that better than what folks did before? I'll look at you, Kevin, because I know you're, sure. you, you work on the platform yeah. side of things. Absolutely. So in... Kind of like you're describing with essentially all the talk about Kubernetes now, and especially in the context of Cloud Foundry, comparing that to the Diego runtime. Um, one of the things that I just, just kind of hit me somewhere along the way is the whole spirit of a pause is that that's not a part of the equation. And good or bad, I believe that delivery has happened in such a way that the developers that, you know, are essentially working on the applications that are great fix fit for a you know platform as a service don't even realize that they're taking advantage of it because it's just it's a run detail um i i have yet to actually find um actually probably anyone that would call themselves a developer that actually enjoys networking you know so kind of in that same spirit creating your 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 you know your code that's running to to actually do that you don't really know or care necessarily that it's in a container. The beauty of the container is exactly the same. So you, you started with your manifest. You declared exactly what versions of stuff you want in there. Um, we have a little bit of abstractions in there that kind of help us out from the security space where hopefully, you know, the APIs are compliant and the stuff runs. You just, you, you create your code and you put it out there and runs. And then you put it in this native environment where you have multiple instances. So you care about the fact that your app is up and running. And to a certain degree, you don't care if there's one running, two running, or 200 running. As long as your app's sustaining your workload and as long as you don't have an outage, you're happy. You're delivering what that application is supposed to do. Containers at the back end allow us to do a lot of those things I teased in there. It allows us to potentially swap out security layers you never even knew or never even cared. Um, it allows you to keep isolation in a sense that like when the rolling platform upgrades are rolling, um, the actual virtual machines themselves successfully shut down because they were in a container. You don't have the hung processes that used to exist in the past. We're now pushing where we want to have ROSs running hopefully closer to hours at a time where, um, you know, a couple of decades ago, I almost made an uptime of over a year and I actually almost saw that on one of my running servers, but that's like two decades ago. Now I'd rather see that thing destroyed in a matter of a couple hours because, you know, the spirit is to get it to zero. So the, the, the part of the beauty of the containerization to me is all of that stuff is, it, it is a backroom detail of which I've kind of been a backroom guy. And even there, me personally, I don't really, it doesn't matter to me that much. What matters to me is the, the haiku. Give me your code. I will run it. And you don't need to know how. 
So the container is an answer in that today. And if that container happens to be purple, great. If it happens to be yellow, awesome. If it's multicolored, make it a rainbow, put a unicorn in it. I see what you're doing there, but I'm not <laughs> taking the bait yet. Um, okay, so so Matt, any perspective on from the the security architecture side? Kevin alluded to the fact that you know while it's it's really kind of a an implementation detail that ideally developers don't have to worry about, don't have to know about, but it does allow for some interesting things to happen behind the scenes. Um, some isolation and uh, the ability to make some mm-hmm. security changes. So from that perspective, does it help the developer experience uh, because it allows you to create an environment where they don't know about it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely helps with, um, you know, taking some of that away from the developer responsibility. But there's been a little bit of a, a cultural shift there as well. You, I mean, when we started moving more towards these disposable containers, Developers wanted to keep control. Wait a minute. Why are you why are you applying the latest build pack? Why are you doing these upgrades? This is going to break my system when I when I don't expect it, right? Well, that you're trying to take away one of the main advantages of shifting towards these containers is it allows us to do these ongoing upgrades. Every time you deploy your app, you're going to get the latest security patches and we're going to make sure that you're running in a safe and secure environment. So there's a little it took a little bit of uh, of adjustment to get used to, but we're we're at that point now where we're really benefiting from that when you, you know, making sure that we're applying all the latest security patches, keeping um, applications isolated, um, upgrading certificates. And there's really a lot that's handled by the underlying platform and building out those containers that we can take care of on the fly. Like Kevin said earlier, you know, he's, he's lazy. I can, I can, uh, I can relate to that. I think we all are on some level, right? So we don't want to have to do all those things ourselves every month. We don't want to have to deal with that, the life cycle updates just to keep our applications up to date. We just want to deliver value. And so the containers really help us get to that point. I remember going back a few years when we're teaching people, what, what's a blue-green deployment? What does that mean to be able to deliver with zero downtime? And we're past that. Now we're talking about sort of that next level, some of the next level challenges and um, um, able to deliver software at speed. And a lar- large part of that is really our ability to take advantage of containers. Okay. Um yeah, that's okay. That's starting to connect the dots. And I think you're you're touching on what that real value of developer experience in the first place, right? If we always come back to that, that's our North Star, which is we're, we're delivering value to our end users, right? We're getting that value to production. If this helps us get there, um, then great. It's, uh, it's supporting that, that goal. Um, I wanted to sort of poke a little bit more also on the security side because there's another aspect to the developer experience that comes up a lot, which is sort of thinking about, you're talking about getting value to production, right? And it's like, that's very deliberate um, that like just building the code and getting it working, right? To Kevin's point of like, let's start with working. Um, yeah, that's important. That allows us to then, you know, do things more repeatably, right? If we if we have a, a working state, but getting it to production has a higher bar. And I know that one of the things that's in that uh, that raises the bar is certainly a lot of security requirements. So when you think about okay, what's helping us deliver that value to customers? We have to get all the way to production. What are some of the things that you see help improve the developer experience um, by looking at that 
path to production and, and maybe Matt, you can comment on the security side and Miranda and Kevin can comment on some of the other aspects. Yeah, for me, it's like, I always make the assumption that developers want to do the right thing. They always have the, the right intentions. I mean, it's certainly not true 100% of the time, but um, it helps to think of it that way in, in terms of like, we have to make it easy to do the right thing and developers will do it. They want to do what's right, but they'll take the path of least resistance to get there. So when it comes to getting an application to production and this process gets me there in a, in a month and this other process gets me there in, in six months, you know which path we're going to take, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, it's a lot about um, you know, looking at, that, at the points of friction and trying to, and looking at the path of least resistance and trying to make it, make it easy to do what's right. And it, it ties back to a lot to developer empowerment and automation of all the capabilities that we need people to be, you know, need to be following and a lot of the practices that we want people to be following and making it easy to build that into, into applications. Yeah. And that, that also makes the case for that value stream mapping process that it helps to know how long it takes to get to production some other way. Um, Cause then, then now you have your target. It's like, I've got to be less than that, less friction, less time, uh, fewer tickets, whatever, whatever the, the measure of friction you want to have, but it's gotta, it's gotta be easier than that. And mm-hmm. then that's how, that's how I'm going to shift developer behavior. Miranda, how about you? Uh, what do you see in terms of the, the distinction of getting to production and what is, how does that change the, the developer experience bar? Yeah, so I think um, something that I've noticed about getting to production that's interesting is kind of each summer when we bring in our new interns or our new hires, um, at least for the interns, the challenge I have whenever I'm mentoring an intern is within their first day, they release something out to production. And it's like years ago, you know, everyone would be so excited, like, oh, I got some code running in production today. That's amazing. And now the interns are like, okay, that's great you know, next, what's next? So it's funny to like have that changing perspective every year of seeing the shift of um, new people coming in because they haven't felt that pain of waiting weeks or months to get something up and running into production. So it's like, I'm over here having a party and you know <laughs> they're not quite as excited. So trying to yeah. try to find like, okay, what's that next bar that we have to measure to? And what's mm. that it's almost like a continuous journey of how can we improve dev experience because people coming in have totally different perspectives on what developer experience is like compared to, you know, those of us who have been working in this field for a little while. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective on our, you know, like some, I'm sure you could uh, ascribe some generational commentary (laughs) on, uh, on that. We won't quite go there, but, um, who needs labels? Uh, but, but yeah, that's true where, you know, over time, like this kind of amounts to just a completely different set of expectations where folks, uh, don't remember the olden days when you used to have to get in a horse and buggy to get your code to production. Um, but all right. So Kevin, how about you? What do you, what do you think in terms of, uh, thinking all the way through to production, what does that mean for the developer experience for you? It's going to be basically, I think a lot of the sentiment, the way Matt described it, but I think one of the best ways I've heard is secure by default. I'm going to make it hard for you to actually remove the security control that was already there for you in place. You know, like one simple thing, feel free to hit our um, services with an HTTP call. 
it's not going to work. Everything's encrypted. It's just easier. You, you know, just do, you know, there's a couple of key simple things like that. Um, how about we sign our certificates with a public signer that's already in all of these other common trust stores? You know how much work that eliminates? It's kind of awesome. Secure by default, it's already part of an existing trust state. Little simple things like that all the way through. You know, same like in Spring Security, if you just add it to your Spring Boot app in the Palm, you have security turned on. Awesome. You know, it, it, to me, that's the best way to describe all of that stuff. Figure out how to embed it in from your your, your working starting point and make it hard to actually remove it because we're all lazy and I'm not going to remove it because it doesn't actually have any value for me to remove security. And if you make it hard, you know, you deliver from end to death. Obviously, those words are a lot easier to say than it is to actually execute on. Um, but that's, you know, the spirit of how we approach everything kind of in the security realm. Makes a ton of sense. And and some the way that you're kind of describing this of like, okay, if I, I have to make it harder to like turn off the secure by default um, features or attributes, right? Uh, that it triggered something for me thinking about like, how do you stay in touch with what, what are developers thinking? What are some of the practices you use, Kevin, to just kind of stay in touch with that? Like, do you sit by side, side by side with developers? How do you kind of stay in their, their head and, and build empathy for what they're doing? The, I guess when you say it that way, I guess it's really shoulder to shoulder. So like I said, I'm, I'm kind of the, on the back side of that equation, if you will. So I don't get to do as much of the, hey, I'm starting a fresh project with from the developer perspective. You know, here's my fresh new Spring Boot app. Um, we use that a lot for ourselves for testing out the foundations and all the work that we do. But what comes down to most of my interactions with developers, it's on that other side of the equation. So I don't get that nearly as much. But quite simply, that what it comes down to is when a problem comes, it's exactly that. We just sit shoulder to shoulder and we start pounding at that code. And, you know, for those that happen to be in the same office as me, shoulder to shoulder is awesome, obviously, literally, but virtually, um, you know, we, we have at least three different failing types of video technology that we could fall back over to the other one when one of them's not working, you know, so we just get together and throw some code, figure it out. Yeah. No single point of video conferencing failure. That's uh, that's a good takeaway. Yes, manage, manage redundancy or other great terms of yes. Yeah, when uh, when physical shoulder to shoulder doesn't work. Um, Miranda, Matt, what what else would you add in terms of how do you maintain or or build empathy for developers? I know you, you're both, everyone's sort of described as a developer at heart, but, you Thank know, you. but people sometimes think different, do different? Yeah, for me, for me personally, I do spend a portion of my time in the trenches, so to speak, shoulder to shoulder with our developers and our, our community, our customer base. And it's not uncommon for me to go to Kevin's and say, have you ever seen somebody try to use this, right? Let's look at this experience. But I, I try to, um, I, I guess I make a personal sacrifice to spend a lot of time keeping a wide open door and having people bring me, bring me problems. Um, a lot of times you discover things that you don't know uh, customers are doing just to work around the things that we put in place. We don't even, they don't even, you know, I guess uh, until you spend time in, in their shoes, you don't understand what it's like to work with some of the experiences that we put in place. So I, I personally try to help them actually solve their problems, not just talk to them and ask them via surveys, what are the biggest pain points, but rather sit down with them and try to solve the problem together. And that way you can kind of experience what they're going through, why they're doing it the way they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of stuff. So I spend a lot of time doing that. That's the only way that I'm, I think I'm successfully able, successfully able to advocate for the needs of our developers is by actually spending time in their shoes. 
and trying to work with our tools that we put in place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Miranda, how about you? Yeah, so I spend pretty much all day, every day with developers, customers across the organization. Um, so my part of our department is our what we call customer success. So we're handling all the um, support tickets that are coming in. So we're seeing all that. We're working with customers every day through that. But then also my personal passion is with education. So I'm working with a lot of our training department, helping develop curriculums, helping run hackathons, run workshops. So I sit in on a lot of that training just to see, you know, how people are experiencing our platform for the first time. So in that way, I do a lot of shoulder to shoulder, kind of getting those first impressions. Yeah, those are really valuable because like once someone gets used to uh, a way of doing things, the, you know, human brains just start to cluster together sets of uh, behaviors and uh, tasks into a, a meta task, like, you know, brush my teeth as opposed to get out toothbrush, get out toothpaste, remove cap, blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, that those, that, those first time experiences, that's a great point of how you get, you know, imagine someone brushing their teeth for the first time. Like you're going to see all the things that are like, why do I have to do this? How much toothpaste do I put on? So, um, that's great. All right. My last question is something that came up in our prep call, um, that, that got my attention, uh, Matt, you described having some unicorn stickers that are uh, sort of coveted awards and recognition, speaking of recognizing and humans. T tell us about these unicorn stickers. Yeah, um, interesting question. The, uh, the, um, we talked about this a little bit earlier, actually, my, my desire to kind of combine this um, this. Uh, developer advocacy with security architecture and try to recognize those people with that expertise to help out, help break down some of those boundaries and uh, helping across teams. And I've noticed that it's pretty hard to find people that are skilled in both development and security. In fact, when I was going after my current position, I remember coming across some naysayers and it seemed like there were, there was going to be a desire to find somebody with some deep textbook security expertise. And instead of being afraid of that, I kind of embraced it. And I said, this is, this is what I bring to the table. This is what our organization needs right now to kind of shift left and start to put that support system in place to be able to help our application teams deliver secure code. And when I ended up kind of landing the job and, and taking that, taking on that role, my wife actually got me a pack of unicorn stickers, unicorns with, with computers, because, um, you know, this was like, a, I guess everybody told me that it was a the, the, someone who knows development and security is a bit of a unicorn in our mm. industry. So I got this pack of uh, unicorn stickers to give out. And the way I chose to use that was, you know, when somebody does something, chose, demonstrates some secure coding practices, um, I give them a little unicorn sticker to put on their laptop. So it's so, uh, just a little form of recognition that somebody's um, doing the right thing and um, learning something new at the same time. Yeah, that's that's quite a, a club to gain membership <laughs> into is the uh, the Unicorn Sticker Club. So I imagine there's lots of folks at Liberty Mutual proudly displaying their unicorn uh, 
computer stickers. I've given out a few, but they're not, they're not easy to come by. So, yeah. Well, that's what I hear about unicorns. You know, I keep looking, exactly. but I, I found a lot of rhinos, uh, instead. Um, all right. Well, thank you everyone for, for joining us today. It's been a, an enlightening discussion about developer experience and connect, connecting a bunch of dots across, uh, what that means from technology and practices and people and teams uh, and, and automating all the processes in between. So thank you and uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you.